So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for our group chats that we have with Marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as you or me from social. In today's episode, we have a chat with Kuljeev Singh, who's the CEO of ResQ. So ResQ is a SaaS-enabled marketplace that helps make it easy for restaurants to manage their repairs and maintenance. It's used by over 5,000 restaurants, and they've also raised over $45 million from top investors like Golden Ventures and Canvas Ventures. So Kuljeev is an early group chat guest, so this is great to have him back on for follow-up group chat, where we started with a quick refresher on the founding story and first steps for starting ResQ, did a deep dive into it as a SaaS-enabled marketplace, got to learn more about how it's evolved, the recent growth, what the fundraising journey has been like, and we also had a great group Q&A. So I really enjoyed this conversation, and you're going to find it a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So Kolji, welcome back. And it's uh, been a while, I believe, what now, uh, two years since you first joined us as a uh, group chat guest. So I'm really excited to have you join us here today and uh, dive into the latest with uh, ResQ. Before we do, though, I think it might be great if you can uh, start off by briefly sharing your background and uh, what led you to starting ResQ for those that uh, might not know you. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, great to meet everyone. Mike, thanks for having me here for the second time. Um, as you said, two, I first joined two years ago, which was very early days of our business and seems like it was very early days for what you were building as well. So incredible progress that you've made and, you know, really awesome to watch it from the sidelines and be, been been part of supporting and having conversation with many other uh, folks who are building marketplaces. So really, really amazing stuff that you're doing. Um, just a bit about my background and our, our story. Uh, I started the business about, it's been about just about five years now, although I'd say like the first two, two and a half years of the business building through COVID was quite the, quite the challenge. Um, so we've gone through sort of many iterations and many changes in the business over the course of the years. Um, my background, I spent about a decade in venture capital as one of my first jobs coming, um, coming out of school. Um, I was a founding team member of a venture capital firm, again, partners, um, joined, you know, very much on sort of like day one of the business. And we, eventually scaled it to raising over 500 million across three funds. Um, I was there for about 10 years, led several investments, sat on several boards, uh, had a chance to build some incredible businesses and work hands-on with founders on bringing their vision to light. And um, along the way, somewhere got the itch of doing something myself and started exploring uh, different ideas and different uh, things. Was always keen on marketplaces as a way to drive value um, uh, to both the sides, you know, the demand and supply side of the of the businesses. Um, so I'd invested in quite a few marketplaces myself in the early days and continue to do that as an angel investor today. Um, uh, around the same time when I was uh, leaving again to um, explore new ideas, um, I come from a family of service workers. You know, my dad ran out of repair shops all his life, so I uh, was very keen on what was happening in the service economy, um, obviously looking at the impact of technology uh, in other verticals. So started exploring everything from restaurants to auto shops to a bunch of other very very manual, uh, you know, businesses that have been that, that operate with very little to no no technology and um, ended up uh, meeting with the restaurant operator who wanted to get out of the restaurant business through that journey. Ended up buying that restaurant and um, you know felt that pain point firsthand, which uh, uh, incubated incubated rescue uh, as part of uh, things that I had seen uh, during my days. Uh, so. Yeah, it's been it's been a wild journey, and um, uh, but you know both come from both a uh, uh, an investing and operating background, uh, but also owning restaurants, which uh, 
like gives me and, and our team a, a very different perspective of what's happening in the space and how to think about it differently. Yeah, no, that's uh, certainly a great background. And you know, thanks for sharing with us on that. So if, if we actually go back to, you know, to the very beginning, though, so, you know, of course, uh, being a restaurant kind of owner and operator yourselves and, uh, you know, seeing that kind of a problem firsthand, you know, what were the actual kind of first steps that you uh, took to start Rescue as a marketplace? Yeah. So, I mean, if I go back, like, and 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 I'm sure, you know, many operators would say, sure, and challenge, like, even, even if I go back to five or seven years ago, 2016, 17, 18, um, the amount of... Uh, or the impact of technology at the front of the house at the time was uh, was huge. I mean, you looked at DoorDash and Uber, which are like many platforms that were coming in to drive net new growth. POS systems were starting to become mainstream with the rise of Toast and many other players in the space. Um, and while all of that was good as an operator, um, uh, the revenue was being uh, revenue and growth was being driven off up to a great extent even then through through technology solutions but as soon as you looked at your back of the house the operations of the business it was extremely manual very underserved from a technology perspective i recall our days and even today you know 2024 when i talk to operators it still remains to be true that most operations at restaurants um specifically at the back of the house are being managed with pen and paper at best so very manual processes picking up the phone and calling vendors we saw a consistent issue across our restaurants when it came time to finding folks to do our repairs. Um, and every time it was a the lack of uh, understanding of what was done by the previous vendors, no digitization um, of, uh, of records on what was being completed and what you should be paying for, no accessibility to finding good vendors in the market like Google at best, or you were literally door knocking at neighboring restaurants to see what plumbers they use. So extremely manual processes and of course, um, looking at what um, incredible marketplaces at the front of the house had done, uh, this idea that you can aggregate demand and supply um, and, and assuming you can deliver a much better experience about the size of the marketplace, you can leverage your economies of scale to create a very differentiated experience. We started early days, very traditional. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, we're a B2B platform and we knew that from day one. But the obviously, when you look at like what other marketplaces have done, you sort of like take those ideas. So, you know, it became very much of a uh, an, a mobile first product um, where you need a plumber, you go in, you get access to one, they go and complete the repairs and view on the transaction flow. Um, but it was very much focused and curated towards single unit operators where there was a transactional need of getting something completed. COVID changed a lot of things for us and we evolved much more to the platform we we have today, uh, truly a B2B uh, company with like the, the, the sort of like software first layer with, with an embedded marketplace. Um, but early days, it was a pure play marketplace without any SaaS component to it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great uh, kind of a refresher for us as far as, you know, the, uh, the early days of starting it for those that uh, joined in on the first kind of group chat. So you mentioned, of course, is, you know, starting uh, more of like a pure play marketplace and then uh, moving into being kind of uh, building out like more SaaS tools and, you know, going kind of more, more uh, vertical. So, you know, what 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 kind of uh, led to that? Yeah, as we uh, when COVID hit us, uh, you know, we were still very small at the time. We had just gone to market or just launched our product in the market. And as I said, it was a very transactional product. Um, the, the thing that we learned quickly was primary customer base being smaller multi-unit or single unit operators primarily went out of business. As you started talking to more and more restaurant operators at the time, uh, we, we, we came across many larger multi-unit operators, kind of not the one to three units, but like five to 50, five to hundred unit operators. And cost controls became a very, very important thing for restaurant operators, which still continues to be true today. If you look at the PNL um, of restaurant operators, every single 
line item on the promo cost perspective is either going up or becoming very hard to control. Um, obviously, when when your revenue is impacted and when margins are being impacted, you want to have more and more uh, management capabilities on the um, on the on on the cost side. Um, and that came in as a factor of we need tools to get certain approvals done. We need tools so that we have visibility into what was being completed at our restaurants. We need tools so that our accounting team is in check on what what is being completed, what they're paying for. And we need tools to help us find the best vendors at the best rates possible to complete those repairs in a single book. So it's very clear that we had to um, expand our horizons to go from, I need access to someone and, and I, I need to complete it in the fastest and the cheapest way possible to, I need a suite of offerings now to have better controls, better workflows, and better visibility to what's happening top down at my at my restaurants. So that was on the on the demand side of the equation. As you started to work with the supply side, which for us is local service businesses, everything from HVAC to plumbing companies to um, uh, electrician companies, etc., uh, they had you know similar sets of challenges for them. Obviously, coming out of COVID, while that has changed now, early days. The demand part was hard because most restaurants were shutting down or were controlling this spend dramatically. Um, two, as these groups were growing and scaling, it was not just driving that new growth through them. If you look at their PL, their PL is made up of a lot of, you know, everything from fixed or variable costs that could be shaved off to create better operating margins for them, which comes in the form of workflows. So as we started to reinvent ourselves post COVID in 2020 and 2021, really the focus was, um, Let's build the uh, the workflow automation and the suite of offerings that both the demand and supply side need, which will enable them to come to rescue for a software perspective. And then as we aggregate demand and supply in specific geographies, we can have this embedded marketplace layer, which has turned out to be true now. But multiple markets, we've got the embedded marketplace. So really at, at its true at its true essence, we are a um uh, our stakeholders, our marketplace stakeholders come to uh, oh, sorry. The software stakeholders come to rescue for the for the software product and say for the marketplace. Um, and and there is an internal mechanism from a distribution standpoint on how we get you know access to both demand and supply. But today, ninety percent of our supply, if not more, actually comes inherited from the from the restaurant operators who bring supply onto the network, and then they use rescue tools to start managing and operating their supply base. And then over time, as we build aggregation in those markets, we leverage our products and our buying power to deliver a much better differentiated experience to the end customer. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting. There's a, so much in there that uh, we're, you know, we're going to kind of get to and probably lot, lots of our questions during the Q&A around it. Um, but I guess it sounds like if we, uh, you know, focusing on the demand side, it sounds like you kind of moved up market when it comes to the, as far as the restaurants. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the, uh, this was intentional and it's worked well for us in many ways. One, um, up, moving up market into multi-unit operators gives you both brand equity that you need in a market. I mean, operating for a multi-unit operator within a specific geography allows you to um, have a better reach. Uh, gives you gives you a better brand, especially when you're launching in a new market. Um, second thing is most multi-unit operators are structured, so there is need for specific workflows. Um, it's not that we are not building or we don't want to focus on 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 smaller single unit operators like that had that in the deal of the company. I was a small unit operator, but we find that the sequencing of how we place and how we unlock net new products and services and offerings is extremely important for the long-term success. So for example, smaller unit operators or say or smaller multi-unit operators, single unit operators primarily require the marketplace and care less about the software tooling because they are themselves operating behind the restaurants 
and they don't need the approval flows and all the workflows that you typically need for it for a larger multi-unit. Um, but in order to get to that level of leverage where you can truly influence the end experience, you need buying power over the supply side. And we feel that buying power comes from our dealer operators. So this is, our strategy is we want every restaurant operator to use rescue over time. Uh, but a strategy starting from the multi-year operator gives us the leverage that we need to then unlock uh, the, the net new value to, to single-year operator. So it's purely a sequencing of events. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, sequencing was a was a topic that I wanted to uh, discuss a little bit more. So you know, so so how do you think about that when it comes to you know I would say like sequencing into you know uh, uh, new new kind of products or kind of features or even like layering on new services or offerings? Whether it's how we do product building or whether how we take our products to market. Um, or how we unlock net new, um, uh, you know, uh, profile of customers within the business. It's all embedded into being very selective of understanding the pain points of customers. So where our DNA has been very, you know, on the ground and first, which is how this business was formed. Um, even till today, we spend an enormous amount of time with our customers, uh, you know, with both restaurants and with both our, 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 our suppliers to really understand the problem set. And, as these groups are growing and scaling, um, there's many asks that comes in that, hey, you know, integrating with accounting softwares would be really, really awesome. And it would help reduce um, our operational burden in the business or uh, suppliers coming in asking for, hey, for, you know, for a small, small supplier operating in a market, cash flow liquidity is, is important. So we, we take all this feedback and we've got an internal mechanism to really parse the feedback to really understand, like, how can we place... Um, the correct things that the things that we build in a manner that one it creates win-win for our marketplace participants but more importantly also allows us to graduate to the next stage and allows us to play for the next thing so um it's a factor of just how we take feedback um but you know internally how we build things is we've got dedicated teams one very much restaurant focused one very much supplier focused um both teams are building workflow automation software for both, both both the sides of the marketplace to get more engagement, to create that new value for them, to help them reduce their um, their operational burden and reduce their and manage their operating costs. And as those comes into play, we get you know we drive more engagement, and with more engagement comes in how you sort of like create the perfect dynamics of then enabling discoverability and enabling trust of, of transacting with each other to the marketplace. So one is like making it extremely easy for them so that they can transact on rescue. And once that starts to happen, the second part is making it easy for them, for them to trust the marketplace experience on rescue. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's really great. So I guess it, it might be a helpful, can you kind of like walk us through like what that experience is like, maybe on the, on the restaurant side, and then maybe even on the service kind of provider side, uh, using rescue. Yeah. So today restaurants would sign up on rescue, um, because they want cost management, visibility, cost controls, streamlined workflows, like 90% of the restaurant operators don't use um, any sort of technology to manage their repairs and maintenance. So our biggest competitor, while there's some competitors in the market, our biggest competitor continues to be pen and paper and spreadsheets at best. Um, and as the groups are growing and scaling, that becomes enormously hard. So we provide um, a, a, a software first product that allows for all those things, work order management, asset tracking, uh, uh, approvals, uh, code thresholds, and, 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 and as a factor of that, um, a repair and maintenance or facilities management software is nothing without the enablement of um, uh, transacting with your with your local service company. So one, they, they buy the software, 
uh, to have better controls and better visibility and better workflows. They onboard their suppliers on rescues, which is how we uh, get connected to our to the supply base. So because it comes to the restaurants, it becomes very simple and straightforward for the suppliers to transact. So it's a very demand-ring supply onto the network. And as we're aggregating more in demand and supply in the markets, then we use a um, mixture of traditional and very creative ways uh, to create this embedded marketplace where uh, as we have more demand and supply in the market, we now start to see how certain suppliers are performing because you've got very strong understanding of the performance metrics for the customer that introduced that supplier to begin with. And as we start to see the good suppliers, we parse those out, have the conversations with them, uh, yeah, and, and provide net new value to them, both from a marketplace as well as payment standpoint to create a very differentiated experience for them. Once they sign up on Rescue, they provide differentiated and better uh, experience to end customers in terms of rates, quality, turnaround time. And that creates this magic within the marketplace that allows restaurants to come and discover net new, uh, net new suppliers and then the ability to transact with them uh, when when needed. So it's very much intrinsic from a software first, uh, uh, start with a software first model, supply comes from demand, and then uh, uh, and that's when and that's and through aggregation we create this embedded marketplace. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the app point as far as um, a few times now. Uh, you know, like uh, demand kind of inviting supply, and you know, with marketplaces, of course, one side inviting the other, kind of making it a little bit a little bit easier. Of course, it is uh, you know uh, very challenging. But could you maybe share a little bit more around you know the, the maybe the reason uh, why kind of uh, the demand side is inviting suppliers, and then kind of how that helps you uh, build you know build rescue as a marketplace. Yeah, so if you look at like the intrinsic challenges in the industry, um, we strongly believe that both the demand and supply side of the market actually means really well. Oftentimes you hear like the industry standard is like a negative NPS score. And right? like if you look like at the core experience that's happening in the offline world, um, it's bad for many reasons, but it's not because the market participants, participants are are doing anything uh, or, 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 or mean bad. It's because there is lack of visibility tooling communication. For example, like it's very common to see an issue happening at a restaurant and someone picks up the phone and, and calls their calls their service company and says, you know, my dishwasher is leaking. And oftentimes you don't know if it's a dishwasher problem, is it a plumbing issue? So the, one is like the lack of understanding of what's actually happening um, uh, at the restaurant level, which creates a better uh, way for the supplier or the service company essentially to have a, uh, to come in much more prepared that doesn't exist in the market it's purely happening on phone calls you're sharing text messages you know sharing some pictures here and there second is there is lack of uh, understanding of the history like if you look at an average equipment because a lot of the supply side don't even know what's done in the past what was being corrected what parts was installed um that also leads to an overall bad, bad experience third is Oftentimes with multi-unit operators, you with more sophisticated groups, you require approval flows. You can't just show up at a restaurant, do a bunch of work and slap a two thousand dollar invoice on on the on the desk and expect to be paid, right? Like oftentimes the, the finance team or the regional uh, uh management teams will ask, who asked for this repair? Uh, should we have waited? Should we continue to repair this? Or or we've in, invested so many dollars and this should be replaced. There's so much goes into the actual decision making of the end repair experience. Um, which is why we believe the the offline experience is very broken uh, because a lot of things are not happening. Clear communication is not happening. Clear expectation setting is not happening. We hear this all the time that, hey, I just wanted someone to come and do a small patch job and charge me $300 versus, you know, uh, previously a vendor came in and now it's charging me $2,000 to change the entire unit, right? But that's not the expectation. That's an expectation setting problem. So 
it's really breaking those things down into its most granular level to understand how we share better information between the participants of the marketplace so that they, both the sides have a good understanding of what is to be done, how we share historical data. So today you go on Rusty, you can actually see how much I've spent on the piece of equipment from a repair perspective or maintenance perspective and should I replace this? We leverage AI into that as well to inform you on what certain costs should be, what your budget should look like. You know, you talk to restaurant operators today, they don't even know, you know, what 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 the average spend should be. Like, what should they be budgeting for this year? So we use a lot of everything from expectation setting to streamline communication to setting the right guardrails that the supply and the demand side can perform within to then guiding them towards what cost should look like, how much certain piece of equipment should cost, how much should certain repairs cost. All of these, all of the things which are broadly categorized in the, in the in the sort of like workflow bucket creates this differentiated experience where both the both the participants start to play um, uh, or start to participate in the in, in the marketplace in a manner that um, that gives them access to the data that they need to perform their end repair work. That's really been uh, the thing that we have we we've really focused on over the last couple of years. It's you know if you look at not undermining any marketplaces here, but like our marketplace. Because it's, there's no standardization, you can have two plumbers go to the same restaurant for the same repair, do things, do 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 it very differently. Because there's no standardization, there is lack of best practices, um, there is lack of uh, 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 you know clear expectation setting. We are in many ways changing a very very legacy industry where we believe the participants want to play well but lack tools to play well. So our goal is to create those tools. To allow them to transact in an easy manner and and in a manner that they can trust each other for the for the end outcome, and then obviously us being um, the the sort of platform that enables the experience, we set the right guardrails on when you know when certain repairs should be done. What are the expectation settings from an SLA standpoint? What should you be costing for certain repairs? Um, by when should you be approving these invoices from a payment standpoint? But those are the things that we bring in. But the core experience is really enabling. Uh, more and more through better workflow automation. Yeah, you mentioned uh, as far as, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I would say a lack of standardization comparative to, you know, maybe some other kind of marketplaces where they have or industries. And I was going to ask on that, you know, so also too, I guess it's worth uh, noting that, you know, you're you're a, a local marketplace, right? So of course, there's kind of all the uh, nuances that that are uh, involved with local markets. So um, I guess, yeah, like where, where are you guys at as far as, you know, today, uh, as, as far as like how many markets that you operate in? Yeah, so um, if, you know, if we were a pure play marketplace business, we would be very, very confined to the geographies that we we operate within. But because everything, is, our marketplace is embedded with, within our core software offering, and the software itself can be sold in any part of the country, broadly speaking, it doesn't restrict us from launching or signing up customers in new markets. So today, for example, we operate in three countries, Canada, US, and the UK, um, US, uh, I mean, you know, we we operate everywhere from Maine to Hawaii, like one spectrum of the country to the other spectrum. Really, customers can sign up because they're onboarding their own suppliers and using Rescue to transact with their supply. There is no restrictions around where they can operate. But as we start to build and um, uh, as we start to build aggregation in those markets and launch embedded marketplaces, that obviously has a regional strategy. Um, there, we're primarily focused on. We don't we don't think about it from a city's perspective because demand for us multi-unit operators spill over into neighboring cities. For example, like if you have a 10-unit operator in New York, that it's very low likelihood that all their 10 restaurants will be in New York. They likely will have one or two in Boston or Philly or DC, right? So naturally, demand takes us to net new markets. Um, so that's why we have this sort of regional focus rather than hyper-localized focus. 
But regionally speaking, we look at New York as a hub around Boston, DC, Philly. So that sort of like that ecosystem. South, uh, which is hubbed uh, in, in, in Dallas and Austin, where we have neighboring cities and neighboring states that we operated within. Uh, Florida, South Florida being a market, but everything from Miami to Fort Lauderdale, all the way to Orlando, uh, uh, Chicago, uh, the West Coast, you know, SFLA. So I'd say like five markets, but as I said, these are not necessarily hyper-localized markets. They're more regions from our perspective. That's uh, very interesting to learn more about. So, so I guess, uh, are, are you kind of like sell, selling the tool and then kind of like uh, layering on the kind of marketplace? That's correct. So even within our um, sales conversations, our, our go-to-market uh, approach is very much around the software tooling and the marketplace is an embedded component. Look, there's... Every customer we talk to, every restaurant operator we talk to, um, most require access to net new supply. Uh, so it's important on how we make those commitments. Um, there's certain ways that we profile local vendors in a market that are willing to deliver a much differentiated experience for end customers around better pricing, quality, service standards. Um, and then we group those things in, in what we broadly call marketplace liquidity. And then we say, we operate across the country. You can bring your suppliers anywhere. But in these markets, you will start to see net new access to net new supply. So, so you and I could, of course, uh, kind of go on chatting, uh, you know, about a rescue for quite some time here, and uh, want to save time for the uh, group Q and A. Uh, but one of the uh, topics that I wanted to uh, chat about, because I, I know we couldn't uh, really talk about it last time, was uh, you know your uh, your latest uh, funding round, and uh, you've you know raised from some uh, pretty awesome investors. And uh, so, what has the uh, fundraising journey been like, and maybe uh, you know your your last round? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, look, we've been very fortunate to have some incredibly strong investors on the table. We've raised three successive rounds of funding, last one being our Series A back in 2021, so about just over two years ago. Um, we're still in a very good position from a capital perspective. We raised um, more capital than we needed, uh, like many companies did during that time, but we were very thoughtful in where we spend the capital. Um, we got tons of runway ahead of us. Uh, we do plan uh, to, uh, to to get ready for our Series B at some point over the course of this or next year. Um, but really, the core focus has been on the core unit economics of our business, uh, driving net new value to the customers, uh, enabling a stronger distribution and go-to-market strategy. Um, but yeah, in total, we raised about an aggregate of just shy of $50 million, uh, across those three rounds. And... Um, and in a very healthy position, both from a unit economic and a cash and, and, and a cash based standpoint. I actually had a question from a founder that uh, sent it to me before the uh, chat related to a fundraising. So I was just going to go ahead and ask it. But um, you know, they, they were asking about as far as you know being like a SaaS enabled marketplace. Um, you know, uh, were you finding yourself you know uh, fundraising early on, maybe where investors were trying to bucket you as like maybe SaaS or a marketplace? And uh, yeah, how did you uh, maybe uh, think about that? No, I if I actually go back to even if I look at a series A, um. Uh, we we did come across a few groups we met who actually did a tough time sort of like breaking down the SaaS work in the marketplace model. I still remember, uh, and look, nothing against any investor. I think everyone's got their thesis. But one what, uh, one group had said like, no one has been able to be successful, uh, you know, having sort of like a dual strategy. Um, one group had told me like, your sort of like core economics uh, will not change in terms of like what your ACV per per unit could be uh, at scale. I mean, truth be told, like both those things we've tackled well. Like our ACV per unit is up seven or eight decks in the last uh, you know year and a half. Um, 
we have we we do have a dual revenue strategy in, in terms of how we monetize on the demand side and how we monetize on the supply side but, and, and it's been a bunch of iterations to get there the thing that we often go back to is like we're not a pure play SaaS company we're not a pure play marketplace company we're a software company we're, we're a software first company which has an embedded marketplace the word embedded is very important you can come to rescue just to get access to the marketplace and say i don't want any of the software tooling i just want this right so you're essentially signing up for the software offering, which is where we come in and say, like, we're a software first company. And then where needed, you have the embedded marketplace where you can you can opt into. We still have customers that will use 70, 80% of the of the supply that they brought on the rescue. And then over time they tip out tip over into the marketplace. And we have customers today that do 80, 90, or even close to 100 percent of the marketplace. But that's a journey we take the customers through as they build trust into the marketplace. So I think without a doubt, we got grouped earlier on. But you know, investors who saw the saw the bigger picture and saw that we're solving a very, very operationally complex problem and and the big vision we've got in terms of who we want to become and how we want to impact industry, we were able to get them. So been been very fortunate and excited around it. Yeah, that's gonna be a really helpful. So hey, uh, Amantha, do you uh, want to come on? Um, what was the pricing strategy for coming up for the cost of the software to charge? Great question. The answer is there was no strategy. I mean, this is all pricing elasticity, like the you test over time. Um, to be honest, like we looked at traditional software systems that operate within a restaurant setting, POS systems, et cetera. And we said like, hey, where is the comfort level of restaurant operators to pay a certain amount? Uh, and what does that what does that look like? Uh, and that's where we started. And we said, okay, POS charges 50 to $150 a month per location. So we should test at the bottom end and sort of like build it up over time. I think the importance is like two things. One, um, we started, I'd say low enough that pricing did not become a barrier to entry for us. And then what we did was we have changed pricing now, I believe four times. Um, and, and, and the more, um, the more density we have in a market, the more products we launch, we're actually, the new cohorts of customers come in at a better and better price. Now we actually have a very tiered pricing approach. We have three different tiers of the product offering. Up until like end of last year, quite literally very recently, we had one single pricing. But it's honestly been just testing a bunch of pricing. I mean, we still deal with it, but this is the early stage nature of any company. You, We have customers sometimes in the same market that are paying two different prices. Now we worked a lot over the last six months to standardize those pricing, but I think it's much more of an art than it is a science in the early days. And then you push the pricing to the level where you start to test it in sales um, in sales cycles to see what is the friction point around what someone would be willing to pay. And that has remained true for us, both on the demand side as well as on the supply side. Yeah, thanks thanks for uh, sharing with us on that, uh, Jeep. So pr pricing is always a, a fun topic to uh, chat through. So You know, building two-sided marketplace is always complex. You know, you want to monetize one both sides because you're creating differentiated value. Um, in a market where we're not creating supply, I mean, if you look at Uber, DoorDash, et cetera, like they have the ability to create net new supply. For us, we're not creating supply. Service companies exist out there. They are operating, they're building businesses. We are building a platform that allows, that, that our, our vision is that that will allow service companies to deliver a much better end experience to the end customer by creating win-win scenarios for both the sides. When you're doing that, pricing becomes tricky especially on the supply side of the equation is like, what is your take rate? What can you charge? What can you charge so that the supply side doesn't uh, flow through that take rate to the demand side? Uh, how do you, and how do you monitor that? So that's where we spend a lot more time on historically, but coming to the exact sort of number has been, you start low enough and you just sort of like build it up over time as you continue to test elasticity, uh, both on the demand and supply side. 
Hey, uh, Cole G, I've actually had a question asked some of right before they uh, jumped off, but um, they were asking, uh, what's the uh, been the biggest learning around uh, hiring and uh, team building? Look, we've gone through a lot of iterations of this. Um, I think anyone building early stage companies, you know, through from 2020, let's call it 2020 to like 2023, talent has been sort of like top of mind where, um, you know, people were willing to pay top dollars and sort of like early stage small startups like us had to compete with that. Um, you know, we, we've tried everything from hiring, uh, bringing on um, ex-operators within operationally complex marketplaces to, uh, you know, finding folks who have sort of like the MBA or uh, professional services, banking consulting background to ex-operators within restaurants and within some of the service companies. So we've got a big mix match of team internally. Um, the thing that we were very mindful of was um, while we competed well, we didn't deviate away from who we wanted to become. So while the market was very frothy, um, we stuck to our sort of our our, our, our DNA on, on and our guns around like, hey, you know, what are the sort of like what are the ranges we want to pay within? Who is the type of talent we want? It worked very, very hard to go and find that talent. We made many mistakes along the way. We had many successes along the way. Um, but sticking, you know, true to the culture and the and the DNA of the business was important uh, all along the way. But many mistakes in the middle. Today, our team is so about seventy percent of our team is uh, centralized around uh, our our HQ, which is in Toronto. It's primarily our engineering product. Um, and support teams, customer-facing support teams, and then all our go-to-market is on the ground. So uh, in the main cities that we operate within is where we have sales and, and marketing. It's local. Awesome. Hey, uh, Michael, do you uh, want to come on? Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. And it's fascinating to hear the the dual aspects of software and marketplace. So super fascinating. Um, I, I had two questions, actually. One is, in terms of providing restaurants with this visibility into their costs, have you had to go beyond services and, you know, I'm thinking like linens and other costs. Have you had to like expand in terms of what your software encompasses? That's, that's my first question. And then my second, if you have time is what other things besides payments are you facilitating through? Like, is there messaging? Is there the scheduling of the appointments and all that as well? So yeah, great, great. Both great questions. So, uh, uh, the answer to the first one is the short answer is yes. Um, you know, historically when we started, it was very specific to, uh, food and beverage equipment, like physical assets at a restaurant. So your HVAC units, your hoods, your fryers, your ovens, um, as, and this was actually a pull from our customers. Like as you started to see, uh, the impact of data that they're seeing, the visibility and controls they had in place, the ease of use and how they can transact with the, with, with local service companies, um, uh, 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 with th those checks and balances in place, we started to get pulled from, hey, can I bring my plumbers and my electricians and can, can you do it? To the extent where now actually customers are also pulling us beyond repairs and maintenance and they're saying, hey, I'd love to run my utilities to rescue. I'd love to run my remittance to rescue. So the show, the, the, we, we've been very selective in sort of like what we say yes to, what we don't, because at the end of the day, we want to deliver a differentiated experience to both the demand and the supply side uh, through too late. Um, but yes, it's all been around our customers have pulled us in that direction. What we didn't go do early days, and we didn't go say in the early days, like, 
you can use rescue for whatever you want. So you tell us, we'll build around it. So we started small and just sort of like, as the customers are pulling us, we made it very simple and straightforward for them to enable more categories. Um, on your second one, um, around what are we facilitating? So we, um, on rescue, you've got the entire, what we call the repair workflow. It starts with, I've got a problem and I need to submit a work order, which we will call work order management. The second step is I need to ensure that this work order goes through the right approvals because sometimes the staff on the ground does not have spend limits beyond a certain amount. So who is responsible for providing that? Third step is I need to find a vendor. Fourth step is I need to schedule with the, with, with the, with the, with the company. Fifth step is someone has to come in and complete that. Uh, sometimes there's quotes involved if it's going to go over a certain threshold. Sixth step is I'm submitting my invoice, which I have to go through the invoice approval flow. Seventh step is I need to get paid. All of those steps, now I'm oversimplifying this, this is much more complex, but all of those steps are are, are, are enabled to rescue. So today, um, everything from asset tracking, work order management, approvals, and controls down to uh, customers paying and vendors getting paid on time is all possible on rescue. Those are great questions. It's going to be super helpful. So appreciate it, Kuljeep. Hey, I actually had a, another question um, from, from someone that uh, posted it in advance in the community. And uh, it was a SaaS enabled marketplace founder. And they were asking, you know, um, when you're building a SaaS enabled marketplace, it's often uh, hard to kind of think about how much you prioritize SaaS um, as kind of like a standalone offering, uh, maybe even from like, you know, product strategy kind of like more overall. Um, kind of versus the kind of connectivity of you know of, of the marketplace. So you know, how do you how do you think about that? We suffered with this a lot. Like frankly, it's very when you're one when you're building a SaaS enabled marketplace. Two when you've got two very um, fragmented sides of the market, restaurants and local service companies. Three when there's no standardization. If you look at the complexity of what we're trying to build, it, it's like 10x. So it's very easy to get distracted on like let's just do this thing or let's focus on this. And we made some mistakes along the way over the past few years. I think what we've realized is like, um, it's very important to know what you want to become and very important to then think through what do you need to do today to get there. Um, so we made a lot of our focus over the last years, building the right tooling, both for the demand and the supply side so that they can um, uh, uh, they can use rescue with the, with the ease and level of controls that they want to deliver the end experience that they want to deliver. So that became the focus. It was very much software first tooling. And then as we were building those tooling, as we were building those tools on the software first side, we didn't lose sight of the fact that who we want to become. We, you know, there's certain ways you can build products and you can say, okay, you take journey A or journey B of building the product. We chose a journey that said in the long term, we know that we want to have embedded marketplace model. So how do we enable that transaction today? How do we get them to communicate to things? So it's building for what they need today, but keeping in a very strong eye and a vision on who do you want to become over time. Uh, and that requires prioritization. And we have learned over time that ruthless prioritization when you're building a complex business like this is extremely important. Um, so yeah, last couple of years uh, has been very much building the software tooling first uh, so that we can have, at the end of the day, for us at least, there is no marketplace if we can't create, create that ease of transactions for both the sides to transact within. But we never forgot that marketplace is a very important thing that we want to build over time because that's where the true like explosive value can be created for both sides. And that that's going to be a really helpful. So I'm glad you I mentioned that you know ruthless prioritization. So that's uh, definitely important when uh, as you mentioned when building uh, operation complex marketplaces. So sometimes we get uh, kind of you know lost uh, kind of caught up in things when it's uh, all the complexities. We we get lost all the time. <laughs> that's that's also comforting here. So hey, uh, Amantha, I saw you raise your hand again. Do you want to jump back on? Can you speak a little bit about the early stage 
sales process? Like, were you going door to door to restaurants? Were you cold calling? And then what was like the handoff or communication between like sales, customer success during the onboarding processes? Yeah. So our internal, um, our internal organization in many ways is very complex because of the nature of the customer base that we deal with. Um, you know, everyone would would everyone would want to sort of like build this picture perfect onboarding flow where customers just join, you know, go online, put in their credit card, and they follow a bunch of steps, and all of a sudden they're live within a matter of a few hours. The reality is, because we're a two-sided marketplace and there's a component of onboarding your suppliers, that becomes very complex. So there's multiple stakeholders you have to deal with. So you're going to build the right workflows for both stakeholders. Then the sales cycle itself is complex. The bigger operator that you deal with, there's multiple layers. You're dealing with the facilities team and the operations team and the finance team. Historically in a world where, uh, as I said, 90% of operators don't, restaurant operators don't use anything. So there is no sort of like budgets in place to pay for software. So now you are sort of like changing that behavior. Um, so there's a lot of complexity around it. So the, the way, you know, on the go-to-market side, uh, it's primarily been um, outbound from, like we have an inside sales team that operates within markets. We don't doorknob, we don't pull doorknobs. The reason why those teams are in the markets is we find that um, they build their pipeline, uh, you know, through sort of like traditional channels, looking at lists, cold calling, et cetera. Um, but oftentimes the ability to meet with customers face-to-face -face has a huge impact to it. Uh, so that's why we placed our 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 go to market teams in the market. Um, we do as 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 markets start to mature for us, we see a tip over point where a majority of the uh, of of our customers start to come to referrals and word of mouth. Like if you look at some of our more, most dense markets, like New York, Miami, example, like these markets have an outsized number of inbound uh, word of mouth referrals coming in. Uh, without us paying for that, like it's not a strategy that we have actively invested in. The fact that let's just deliver really, really awesome experiences to customers and make it a very sticky product. And I'll tell you, especially operating in the restaurant space, like good news travels fast and bad news also travels faster than good news. So we have to do all the right things in the early parts of the journey to create those aha moments, um, which enables the sort of like uh, uh, flywheel to start working. So. We intrinsically have a demand to supply a flywheel because every operator brings their suppliers on, but we're also building very deeply a demand-to-demand -demand flywheel. But all the early parts of any journey is going and establishing the, uh, your presence in the market, uh, doing a lot more outbound. But we have a very selective um, account-based strategy. So when we do go after certain markets or we do go after certain regions, we know the type of customers we want. We know the bigger customers in those markets that can unlock the brand equity that we can demand for. So when we launch a market like New York, DC, or Chicago, or LA, um, it really becomes about finding those top accounts that can enable us and, and help us burn, build brand equity. Once the deal, so that's on the go-to-market side. What we have realized in the last six months now is um, we're transitioning more and more to, um, as we transition more and more to the account-based strategy, we're also realizing like, most restaurants are not easily discoverable, so we have to go meet them where they are. So events has become a big part of our strategy now, uh, 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 doing partnerships with other players that broadly sit within the restaurants. Uh, technology stack has become a big part of our strategy now that we're investing in. So, But that's been an evolution, but it all started sort of like, you know, very much outbound from day one. And on the onboarding side, uh, still very complex, but uh, we've got multiple teams internally. Sales is responsible for closing and does the handoff to a very specific onboarding team that has ownership of that account uh, from signing till go live. 
not even just go live, but through the first few work orders and experiences, just so that we can make sure that the early experiences are good. And then it gets, it gets back over to, the, to our account management team. Well, cool. Well, this, we're almost out of time here, but uh, yeah, Kolji, thanks uh, for taking the time to join us here today. This is uh, great to have you back on and, uh, you know, hear the latest and, uh, you know, kind of dive into more some of the specific kind of topics and uh, questions that we had here with uh, with Rescue. Definitely uh, super impressive to see what you built. Um, so I actually had uh, one last question for you before I wrap things up. And uh, I guess this is probably a newer question that I started asking at the end of group chats. Um, but, you know, if you could uh, go right back to before you uh, started Rescue, uh, what would you tell yourself about uh, marketplaces specifically? We, we often talk about this internally. I think the, the mistake we made, and I'm, I'm sure that many make, uh, or, or, or at least I think that many make, is uh, you, look at, you look at your marketplace or the type of business you're building, and you try to replicate another marketplace business that have been successful. You look at the Ubers and the DoorDash and the Airbnbs of the world and the fairs of the world, and you say, oh, I'm just going to do those things. I think that's very common, and we were certainly... Um, uh, you know, we certainly suffered with that. I think no two marketplaces are made the exact same way. Um, every marketplace is different from the other one, which requires a strategy and evolution of how you think about uh, sequencing your your marketplace directly, building the right product around it. So um, the thing that we learned is like staying very, very close to the customers, talking to them often, uh, understanding their pain points and really specific, specifically building products and solutions that work for them with this bigger vision that you've got in mind is important. Oftentimes, I see us doing it and I see many people doing it as like, there's a world you want to create and you just start creating that world without knowing that today when the customers uh, care about that world or not. Um, so that was our big learning is like, no, no to market business same. We try to replicate the playbooks that have existed in the past. Um, and uh, many ways we learned that we, we have to create our own playbook. Yeah, no, I'm definitely guilty of that myself. So, uh, and that's going to be a great, great parting advice for us as well. So, and uh, last but not least, time for a quick plug. Where can we uh, keep up with you at? Yeah, so I just typed my email address um, uh, just on the chat here. It's kj at getrescue.com. Please reach out to me. You can also reach out to me through uh, the Everything Marketplace uh, platform. Uh, I'd love to chat more, uh, love to learn from you guys, love to share our learnings along th that we have had along the ways, but uh, uh, very, very fortunate to be a part of what, what Mike's building and, and always happy to, uh, you know, grab a virtual, virtual coffee or chat and discuss all things marketplaces. So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with Marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.